0: The Bible is a book full of unsolved mysteries. Are you looking to finally make sense of it all? Join our weekly conversation and think about the Bible like you never have before. Listen, watch, and interact with us at ChristianQuestions.com. You're listening to Christian Questions. Here's Rick and Jonathan.
1: Alexander Solzhenitsyn said, The battle line between good and evil runs through the heart of of every man i'm rick and this is not your typical christian commentary as we look at bible related topics from a different perspective
2: i'm jonathan this podcast centers on godly principles family values and honest dialogue in a politically free zone
1: folks we thank you for joining us today this is a contact friendly format and we welcome your thoughts by way of email messaging us at christianquestions.com facebook and our website chat board so jonathan what's our topic for today
2: Well, Rick, our question is Is it God's fault we have evil in this world? Ooh, that's a good one. Our theme text is found in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 7. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. So there you have a
1: scripture saying God's the one who creates calamity. (laughs) All right. Again, the question Is it God's fault? We have evil in this world. Every Christian acknowledges the evil that permeates our world through explaining its depth and purpose, but explaining its depth and purpose can be challenging. We always say that evil is the result of sin and Satan, and that is true. The harder question that most don't ask or want to ask is whether or not God is responsible for evil. If he is the Almighty, and he has, and he is far above all that he created, then surely he must bear a generous amount of accountability for what we see around us. We believe that God is powerful enough to stop the evil and chooses not to stop it. So by definition, he must own some blame for all that evil produces. As a Christian, and this may be a surprise to some, I believe— That God is accountable for evil. However, don't go running and telling everybody till you hear the rest of the story. If we're going down that road, then there are other roads of accountability that justice requires us to go down as well, because it would be unfair to only tell half a story. So Jonathan, this podcast today is about telling the whole story about God and evil. Coming up in today's podcast, why does God prevent some evil and yet allows other evil? Doesn't make sense, does it? In our second segment, we're going to explore the allowance of one sin, just one, that doomed the whole human race. Why couldn't we get around that with God's help? Or this, how do you explain God mercilessly wiping out an entire the entire human race except for Noah and his family? In our third segment, we're going to face that quandary as well as the notion that that God purposely passes sin down from one generation to the next. Or what about this? Why would God ever command that his people completely wipe out another people? Our fourth segment takes an honest look at this very, very big dilemma. And finally, is our planet truly, truly Satan's playground? Is God just waiting around for Satan's time to be up? Is it even possible to stop evil in our technology-advanced world? answers to this coming in our fifth segment. But first, is it really reasonable to put all humanity through the ringer because one guy took a bite out of one apple? I mean, come on. (laughs) (laughs) So, Jonathan, this is a really, really, really big subject. It's a tough subject, and we don't want to treat it with kid gloves. The gloves come off in in dealing with this, but we want to treat it fairly, which is the way we try to treat everything.
2: Absolutely, and uh, uh, thus saith uh, the the Lord is what we're looking for, scriptures that really bring out the truth on the matter.
1: Right, and we're going to talk about scriptures that bring out the the look of evil and the look of good, and how do you put those together? Let's start with a soundbite. This is from The Problem of Evil, from crash course philosophy i like this guy he talks fast like i do so i i automatically you know gravitate toward people who talk fast but um he's got some he's he's a good thinker he's a good reasoner and he brings out a, a lot of things we're going to be going back to uh throughout parts of our podcast so you know he's he's addressing the question the problem of the problem of evil why is there evil
3: But one of the most persistent challenges to God's existence is also the root of one of the most asked, but least answerable questions that we as thinking beings face. Why is there evil? Evil comes in many forms, and likewise, for philosophers, poses many problems, especially vis-à-vis the existence of God. First, there's what's known as the logical problem of evil. Like all rational people, theists can't help but acknowledge that the world is full of evil. And here we're understanding evil to be all manner of bad stuff, like not just Hitler or Darth Vader or Moriarty. It's everything in the vast spectrum of badness, from stubbed toes to plagues and everything in between. Theists and atheists both agree that evil exists in this way, but they disagree about the next Many theists believe in an omniscient, omnipotent, and omnibenevolent God. But atheists argue that this creates a contradiction, a set of beliefs that can't all be true at the same time. Because evil is bad, right? Whether it's stubbed toes, or genocide, or paper cuts, or epidemics. So if there's really an all-knowing God out there, he knows about all the evil. He might even know about it before it happens. And if he's all-powerful, he could stop it. And if he's all-good, then he would want to stop it. And yet he doesn't. The evil continues.
1: Okay, so he he brings up several points there. Now, first of all, he's talking about evil, and he throws in stubbed toes. I don't know if I'm going to go that far. Okay, okay. you know, all paper right. cuts; those aren't evil. Those are mistakes. Those are you know, that's a little bit of pain. You know, now let's talk about you know, the really big things. Okay, you know, and but he brings out an important point. You know, if God is omnipotent and God is all knowing, then He could stop it and would want to stop it. And, and I we,
2: and we believe he, he he could if he wanted to.
1: Right, right. And we believe he wants to. So what's holding up the, the works here? <laughs> That's where we have to get to. Okay. So we're gonna begin with creation. And I know, Jonathan, we go back to the creation story a lot, but it's so important because it gives us a foundation. The 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 original consequence of sin. You know, you can't measure God's accountability without first measuring the grace and gifts that came before the sin. And if you want to be fair about judging God, because everybody, you know, so many people say, God is a monster. Look at this scripture. Look at that scripture. And my response is, okay, if you want to understand God, are you willing to give him accountability for the other things too? And if you're not, then there's no conversation because you don't want to know. You just want to point a finger. So our approach is going to be helping people, hopefully, to know God. Genesis two fifteen to 17.
2: Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man saying, From any tree of the garden you may freely eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. And you know, in, in the King James Version in the margin it says, Dying
1: thou shalt die. And that, that's important. We're going to get to that in a little bit. But you know, Here's the thing. God gave specific gifts to Adam in these verses. What, what were those
2: gifts? He did, Rick. He gave him life. Um, he gave him space, food. What about responsibility? And once Eve was created, how about companionship? So there were a lot of really awesome gifts. There were. And
1: also, there was communion with God. There was communication with the Creator Himself. Just reading part of Genesis 3.8 gives us that feeling.
2: They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day.
1: So, you know, that gives a sense. Now, that's when they had sinned. It it describes that. But they heard the sound. So they knew the sound. And that's the point. So God would visit them. However, God would visit humanity, you know. So it really gives you a sense of, of, of belonging and life, and space, and responsibility, and all of these things were wonderful, wonderful gifts. So what's the question we have to ask?
2: And Rick, the question is, are we willing to hold God fully accountable for the miracle of his beloved human creation? And Rick, I'm willing, yes. (laughs) 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 And
1: and Jonathan, see, you know, it sounds like a silly question almost, but if you're going to talk about holding God accountable for evil— Then hold him accountable for the rest of what he's accountable for. And the first thing he's accountable for is this incredible creation and the incredible gifts of life and space and and responsibility and companionship, all of those things. Hold him accountable for those too. Let's be fair, okay? Let's be fair. Jonathan, we have a story that we're going to use, kind of like a modern day parable, if you will. Uh, about a man, and the man is a picture of God, and his children are a picture of the human race, and his neighbor in this parable is a picture of those who will judge God. So let's just sort of open the story. We're going to let it develop throughout uh, the podcast.
4: The Open Window, a parable about God's love. Once not so very long ago, a man became a father. He and his wife had twins, a boy and a girl, And this man was overjoyed at their arrival. The responsibilities of parenthood brought the man to his knees in humility, for those children would need him to guide them from infancy all the way to adulthood, when they would be able to self-govern. To focus himself, the man drew up a contract, to which his wife and closest neighbor, who was very much a recluse, were witnesses. It said that he would always do the right thing for the ultimate benefit of his precious children. Caring for infants was well-defined and exhausting. Much time was spent carrying, feeding, changing, and entertaining. Reading to them and rocking them to sleep was an end-of-the-day experience of peace and joy. The man's reclusive neighbor could hear much of this through his open window and thought, surely this man is a wonderful father.
1: So, you know, it's everybody's happy, right? That's right. It's you a got, beautiful story. It, so is, it is a beautiful story, and, and you've got those beloved, tiny, tiny newborns. And there's nothing like a newborn. There's just nothing like a newborn child. And and the care and the love and, and the, the overwhelming peace of the bond is just incredible. And we're saying that our, our looking at God needs to be looking at this father raising his children. So, the story opens up and all is good. <laughs> Just wait. <laughs> so, you know, we talked about God's, some of God's gifts to Adam. You know, life, space, food, responsibility, so forth and so on. Satan also gave gifts to Adam. Genesis chapter 3, verse 4.
2: The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil.
1: Okay, so let's talk about the gifts that Satan gave to Adam. What's the first gift?
2: Rick, it's a lie. <laughs> you, you will not die.
1: Okay, it's a lie that sounds really cool and really big. Oh, don't worry, everything's okay. But it's a lie. That's Satan's first gift. What's his second gift?
2: Misrepresentation of God. Satan took God's actions and process out of context, God did know their eyes would be opened, but his shielding them from that was in their best interest and was not without something they deserved, as Satan implied.
1: So God's not holding back something they deserved, because Satan's implying, God really doesn't want you to have this, and I'm telling you it's okay. God was protecting them until they were ready for such knowledge. He held it from them on purpose. Satan misrepresented God and his process and this context. He he took it and he twisted it. That was Satan's gift to, to Adam. What's his third gift?
2: A new alle- allegiance. Now Satan stood higher than God in the minds of Adam and Eve.
1: And he became their ruler. He became the one they began to follow. And to this day, humankind follows him. So those are the gifts of Satan. A lie misrepresenting God, and a new allegiance. So, what's the question?
2: Are we willing to hold Satan fully accountable for the lie and deception that led to man's sin and then death? Are we
1: willing to say, yes, Satan did something really bad here?
2: and We it, should be, Rick. Right? We should we, be. You
1: yeah. know, we've we got to be willing to put accountability for everything where it all belongs. Uh uh Jonathan Trish is here. She's uh she's our our, our our monitor for many of the comments that comes in. Uh and so Trish, what have you got for us?
5: <clears throat> this is a comment, Rick and Jonathan from Facebook. It's sort of a, a picture of how poorly God is doing, actually. It says Bible kill count, not including the flood, Satan, ten, God two million four hundred and seventy six thousand six hundred and thirty three.
1: Okay, so, you know, and, and we've we got a lot of that on Facebook, and thank you, Trish, you're going to be bringing a few of those to us as, as we go. But, you know, they're saying, well, look, if God is so good and benevolent, how come he killed two, 2.4 million people in the Bible? You know, like, yeah, and, and that's your God? Really? Satan only killed 10. Shouldn't we be worshiping him? Well, we are worshiping him, first of all, okay? <laughs> but, but secondly, again, Jonathan, it's a matter of proper accountability. I am not going to deny that God ordered destruction of people and places many times many times and we're going to talk about some of those and the where and the why but to hold god accountable for those things you are not allowed to do so if you're going to be fair now if you don't want to be fair you can do whatever you want but to be fair you have to hold him accountable for the goodness that he put in place ahead of time and all of the other things as well so jonathan the idea that okay we're saying satan's at fault Is this a flaw in God's plan, watching it go off the rails right at the start? Can we accuse God of careless planning? No. Okay. We cannot. All right. Well, let's take a look at why. Genesis 1, 26 and 27.
2: Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over all the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female, He created them.
1: So we're created in God's image. And, you know, you've got to understand what that means. There's a lot to say about that. We're not going to get into great detail here. But realize that Satan, as Lucifer, was also created in the image of God. He was created with the ability to think and to decide and to act and to restrain. That's what being in the image of God is. It's not being just full of instinct, it's being full of thinking and choosing. Each, both Satan and Adam, had the gift of thought and choice and responsibility. Satan, earlier, had chosen to go off the rails. Adam also chose to go off the rails. Now you think, well, that's really early in, this, in God's plan. It really doesn't sound like you did a very good job planning. Well, think about this. God gave them the ability to think. An influence came into in before uh um adam that he did not question instead of saying that contradicts what god said he just went along so you got to ask yourself well what's wh- wh- what's up with that how did that all, all come to be so here it is so at the outset god is sounding pretty reasonable his demands on adam
2: were certainly not too tough what does dying thou shalt die actually look like how did it practically play out in their lives
0: It's not Rick and Jonathan's style to talk about themselves, so I'm going to do it. Your Christian Questions random male voice guy. Let's play Did You Know. Both your hosts have full-time day jobs and put a ton of time into this podcast as volunteers. They're also both volunteer pastors in their church and their longtime husbands and dads. So safe to say they're pretty busy, but they love having weekly discussions with our listeners. So make sure to reach out to us at ChristianQuestions.com with your questions or suggested topics. Now, let's take our discussion to the next level.
1: You know, the interesting thing about God's giving consequences to Adam and Eve is that our knowledge is limited because there are very few words written. Think about the years. Yeah, I said years that they would have lived in the garden in harmony with God. Think about the communication and lessons they would have benefited from during those years in the garden. And so, Jonathan, we've got got to, again, put it all in its right perspective
2: and most people don't think about the years do they no
1: no they don't and you know by 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 adding up numbers and 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 uh, generations and so forth we can estimate that they were probably in the garden for a couple of years and you know so it's not like cuz you know what it looks like in the in the scriptures it looks like adam's created he figures out that he's alone eve's created and about 10 minutes later the <laughs> the serpent appears and gives her a piece of fruit yeah. You know, that's what it looks like in Scripture, but that's not what it was like. Got re- to remember, in the first six chapters of Genesis, you go through 1,600 years. So, wow. you know, time goes by with just a few words. So they had opportunity. They had time. They did have experience. Let's go back to crash course philosophy, the problem of evil. And this this guy introduces a word called theodicy. And it's, a, it's an interesting word, and uh, he describes what it means, and it really does fit our discussion today.
3: A theodicy is an attempt to show that the existence of evil doesn't rule out the possibility of God's existence. Yes, this is such a big deal that there's a word for it. And the most popular theodicy is called the free will defense. This argument holds that God maximized the goodness in the world by creating free beings. And being free means that we have the choice to do evil things, a choice that some of us exercise. This theodicy says that God doesn't create evil, but evil can't be avoided without depriving us of our freedom. And a world without freedom would be a worse place overall. This explanation preserves God's goodness, because he created the best possible world, and also preserves his omnipotence and omniscience, because although he does know about evil and could stop it, he has a good reason not to, to ensure our freedom. The problem is, the free-will defense only really addresses what's known as moral evil, or the evil committed on purpose by humans. Now, we're certainly responsible for a lot of bad stuff, but you can't blame us for everything. We can't be held responsible for the fact that the plates of the Earth sometimes shift, causing destructive earthquakes, or that a storm might knock a tree over that falls onto someone's house. This type of evil, the stuff that we're not responsible for is called natural evil.
1: So, he, he's really hard to divide cuz he talks so fast. But you know, so this theodicy idea is is saying that, you know, there there's a there's a logical reason why God God uh, allows evil because having choice gives it that's the best possible world. And I would agree with that to just a point. Because I think the story of God being accountable for evil has a much bigger and better ending than just that. Because if you leave the story there, then what ends up happening is so many people end up living a life of suffering and misery and often loneliness and brokenness, and then that's the end. But see, that's not the end, because we know God's plan is so much bigger and better than that. And then he gets into the evil of, you know, earthquakes that are, and, and storms that hurt and kill people and all of that, and what's up with all of that? We'll touch on those things as well, because I think there's some interesting... Uh, explanations to put all of this into a package. So, Jonathan, let's get back to Adam and Eve. After a significant time, what we're saying is a couple of years, sin enters. And now the sentencing comes that defines what we were talking about earlier, dying thou shalt die. So there are going to be four points of consequence from this first sin. And again, we're taking a lot of time on this, because by defining it clearly, we're trying to be fair by saying, okay, we want to hold God accountable for the evil in this world, let's hold him accountable for all of the steps before it got here and see what he was doing. What's the first point of consequence?
2: Humanity had to be removed from access to the tree of life for the physical dying process to begin.
1: Okay, let's read Genesis three twenty-two and 23.
2: Then the Lord God said, behold... The man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken.
1: Okay, so the scripture is specific about God putting man out of the garden because he didn't want him to eat of the tree of life. And remember, in the beginning, he said, you know, the tree of life, it's there for you. So what that tree of life was, who knows what was on it, but it, it it contained whatever vitamins or minerals or enzymes or whatever it was to maintain the human form in its perfect, perfect state.
2: It wouldn't decompose. It right. wouldn't age. It would be perfect.
1: So God said, the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree, of the knowledge of good and evil— Dying, thou shalt die. You begin the dying process. So what God does is God expels them from the garden, and that automatically begins the dying process because now they don't have access to the tree of life. But here's the question. Whose fault was it that they were expelled from the garden? Was that God's fault? (laughs) No. No, it wasn't God's fault. Somebody can say, well, you know, Satan had something to do with it. Yes, he did. But who made the decision? It, it Adam. Was, it was Adam, Adam. made the decision to sin. That's right. Adam made the Eve had deception involved, but Adam decided. It was his fault that dying thou shalt die. It was his fault he was separated from the one thing that could perpetuate his human life, on and on and on and on. Okay? So humanity had to be removed from that. What's the second point of consequence of the sin?
2: Rick, the woman would directly suffer in the most basic areas of life.
1: Okay. Genesis three, sixteen to nineteen.
2: To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children.
1: So is this God saying, Ha, I'll show you here, have some pain. Ha ha ha. I mean, we often interpret it that way because we want to make God a monster. Or is it God saying that living outside of the garden, the garden where all was balanced by definition, living outside of it produces far greater physical pain? See, I think that the tree of life put all of that in perspective and held all of those things at bay. Without it, there's a deficiency. So, and then, and so, so the first part of the woman's suffering, ends up being in this very basic way of, of physical pain uh, of childbirth. And then there's another aspect to it. What's the next part of the verse?
2: Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you.
1: So again, a consequence of living outside the garden, this time is it's a social and emotional consequence. Instead of God being over them as equals, and that's the way it was at the beginning, the physically stronger would now rule the physically weaker. So again, whose fault is that?
2: Well, it's not God's. It was Adam's mistake, his sin.
1: And, and Eve, for participating in that sin, these are some of the things that were to come upon her. And again, yeah. it's the removal from that environment in which everything was balanced. Those were the natural consequences. So God is allowing natural consequences to take place. You know, God is not like beating them down. This is what naturally happens when you're separated from those things which hold those things keep keep those those difficulties at bay. When God is over you equally, everything's cool. When he's not, it's not. Okay? It's just simple. Okay. Let's go back to the story. Remember we left the man with his two children and they were newborns and the neighbor hears the harmony and says, what a wonderful father. Well, time goes on.
4: The twins grew to be toddlers and began to taste independence. The man now needed to reason with them about proper behavior instead of just showing them. There were times, many times, that reasoning did not work and the twins would cry and scream and even throw tantrums because they could not have their way. The man was patient, but sometimes he had to be firm. Now, his neighbor could not hear patience through his open window, but he could certainly hear firm. He could also hear the tantrums and the crying and thought, surely this man is not quite so wonderful, for he says and does things that make his sweet children so unhappy. This man is not a good father.
2: How things change. They do. In, but but he wrote a contract saying I'm going to do the best I can for these children in the right make the right decisions I can in raising them, and he wrote that contract out right right. So he made the promise
1: to abide by that. But the man next door, by listening, is hearing the unrest saying he's not doing a good job. He is not a good father. Now we'll we'll, we'll develop the story and and folks you know where this story is going. Okay, I mean <laughs> because it's a story of life. But it's also the story of God with humanity. That's what this is there to represent. It is God with humanity, and those of us who look and listen in and say, Oh, what a monster. Hold on. Hold on. The story's not over. Okay? Let's get to the third point of consequence from the garden and the sin. You know, the first point was humanity had to be removed. The second point had to do with Eve and her consequences. The third point has to do with Adam directly.
2: The man would directly suffer daily to provide what was once simple and a matter of joyous responsibility.
1: Okay, his job was to provide, and it was going to be difficult. Uh, This is Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 through 19.
2: Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread, till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And incidentally, that's proving
1: the idea of dying thou shalt die. You came from dust, you're going back to dust. That's proving what God said, You know, contrary to what what, what Satan had said. But see, here's the question: What's God doing here? What's He doing?
2: Well, He's giving consequences uh, to to Adam: uh, physical toil, emotional uncertainty, and inevitably death. Now, whose fault is that, Rick?
1: And see, you got to ask the question: Is that God's fault? And the answer is no. He put the guidelines in. Adam and Eve had experience with God, and now you've got this. This choice that leads to hard consequences. So it's not God's fault. So, you know, what God's doing here is he is letting fallen nature take its course. This is really important, Jonathan, because that's what God does. He lets things take their course so that we can, in retrospect, be able to look back and say, wow, that was a bad course. Never do that again. That's right. Okay? And by letting fallen nature take its course, can you say domino effect? Because (laughs) that's really what happens. Okay, I I just want to read, Jonathan, we got a comment from someone who is very, deeply angry at God, and I want to read this in a few parts, and I will tell you folks, this is really a hard, sad, difficult, difficult story. And we're going to unfold this as we go through the, the podcast. She, she starts out, If you saw some, someone about to burn to death and you didn't do anything about it, you would be considered a monster, and rightfully so. In the same way, if you had medicine to stop people from dying in agony and didn't give it, you would have to be some heartless monster. Hitler was considered a monster, and rightfully so. He did, however, prove himself better than God for a while, as for the most part he did let people die. God carries out his monstrosity into the hereafter as well as on this earth. He created a hell. First point this individual, and we're going to read more from her later on, has suffered horribly, horribly in her life with tragedy after tragedy after tragedy. And I can't even express. You know, it makes makes me well up just just thinking about some of the things she writes about. But the first thing, Jonathan, we need to put things in perspective. To be fair to God, God did not create a hell. As a matter of fact, the concept of hell does not belong in the Bible. It was never there, not from the very beginning. We can prove it to you. We've gone through, we have a three-part series on, on how to understand the Bible, the Scriptures, and hell, and you will find by with exhaustive study that it does not belong there and we'll get to that a little bit more later and that's the first thing let's be fair to god not give him credit for darkness that is not even real hell is not real plain and simple no it's not real so back to the consequences we're gonna get back to her story in a little bit but back to the consequences of the garden jonathan what's the question we have to ask
2: are we willing to hold god fully accountable For the learning opportunity he gave to our first parents. He gave them a chance.
1: Are we willing to say yes? I'm going to hold him accountable for giving him a chance. Yes, it's his plan. That's right. you got to. To be fair, you have to. All right, let's go to another soundbite. This is another person who really doesn't like God so much. As a matter of fact, he kind of hates him, and uh, he's going to give some reasons why.
6: To start with, if you were trying to imagine the most evil god possible, you might come up with a psychopathic monster who would destine his creations to be pointlessly tortured for all eternity. But to be even more cruel, perhaps this evil god would first have most of those creations live a few relatively pleasant decades, just long enough to experience love, happiness, joy, and all the other good things in life only to then snatch it all away and leave them to be tormented by memories of that life during their eternal suffering. To further accentuate this betrayal, perhaps this evil god would have promised his creations a heavenly afterlife, contingent upon following the right religion, but then remained hidden from his creations so well that thousands of conflicting religions developed, ensuring that the vast majority of his creations would choose the wrong religion and thus inadvertently damn themselves.
1: That's a pretty horrible god he just described. It sure is. And here's the thing: it is not the god of the Bible, not the god of the Old Testament or the New Testament. Same god in both 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 parts. That does not, in one in one small way, describe God. It does not. It is based entirely on misconception that is developed. Through traditions and wrong teachings. simple, simple, simple as that. What's the fourth point of consequence from the, um, the 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 sins in the garden?
2: Though listed first in the text, this fourth point shows that God's answer for the initial cause that man that gave man opportunity to disobey was going to be eradicated.
1: So this next scripture, even though it was mentioned first, we we held it to last, Genesis 3.15, is
2: about Satan. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. So what's the question? Are we willing to hold God fully accountable for providing a pathway To root out spiritually evil. So to
1: root out spiritual evil. did Are we willing to say, okay, God provided a pathway out of all of this mess? If you notice, right when that first sin on earth happened, God right from the start showed us that the cause of that sin, the root cause, Satan, would be destroyed. That is a veiled prophecy. So at the very beginning, he already tells you, I've got this under control. But he's also telling us, but I'm going to let it run its course, because you need to see what evil is. God is accountable for evil, but are we willing to give him accountability in the context of the brilliance of experience? So looking at it this way, sure does justify God's position as creator and lawgiver. He made perfect sense.
2: We now have plenty of foundation. What about the evil that has developed over the last 6,000 years?
0: We have a simple yet powerful request for you. Can you think of someone who'd enjoy listening to this podcast? Send them a text message right now. Tell them to check out our Christian Questions podcast. That's one of the great ways to spread the word. Thank you for sharing our weekly conversation with every single person you know. Well, who you want to tell is still up to you. Thanks for texting and listening. Let's go back to Rick and Jonathan as we take a closer look at our topic.
1: You know, our random voiceover guy gets excited about a lot of things, doesn't he? He
2: does.
1: (laughs) Look, in in our human relationships, any fall from grace can happen in an instant. Ill-conceived words, uh, an irrational action, or misplaced trust can easily shatter a connection. Recovery in human relationships requires far more than just picking up the pieces. It requires a careful and time-consuming reassembling of that which was broken. So the big question is why would we expect the recovery of the human race back into God's grace to be any different than that? <laughs> I mean really think we about shouldn't. think about how hard it is to repair human relationships and how sometimes it takes years and years and years and sometimes it even takes generations. You know the 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 uh, the feud between the Hatfields and the McCoys? Now, I the, knew you
2: were going to bring that up. <laughs> that, but that is
1: a legendary feud that went on for generations. This happens amongst humans. So when we say, well, you know, for God to be, you know, uh, good, he has to be able to rectify things. Well, if humanity can't rectify things in an instant, why would we expect God? I mean, really?
2: And Rick, I, I have another question. Yeah. Why Why do we say six thousand years? Uh, that's pretty specific about uh, the this development of evil and sin.
1: Yeah, you know, and and when we trace back through the genealogies that are given to us in Scripture to the creation of Adam and Eve to now, it's over six thousand years. So we've got a six thousand year trial period for sin and death. It entered and it's gone to work. And God has allowed it to go on all of this time. You say, man, that's an awfully long time. Is it? I ask you, if you were to compare 6,000 years to a million years, is 6,000 a lot? No. <laughs> what if you compared it to 5 million years? Is it a lot? Of course not. What if you compared it to eternity? We can't even fathom eternity. And God thinks in terms of eternity. So, our suffering and pain is difficult in the here and now, but it is not forever, and that's the point. The promise at the end of the last segment proved that. So, but there are still those when they look at God, they they get angry with Him because we look at the here and now, and it's big and it's real. And you know, Jonathan, we don't want to underestimate it. I'm going to go back to the problem of evil, the crash course philosophy, and this this is actually fascinating. Um, just, just a take on unfriending God, if you will.
3: Let's consider the case of Ivan, a good Russian who wants to break up with God. In the novel The Brothers Karamazov, 19th century Russian writer Fyodor Dostoevsky presents us with Ivan, a man who claims to believe in God. But Ivan finds the fact that God allows evil to exist to be so unforgivable that he decides that worshiping such a God would be just unconscionable. Ivan goes so far as to declare that he is returning his ticket to heaven. If the same God who allows evil, particularly the suffering and death of children, is also saving a place in paradise for Ivan, well, Ivan wants nothing to do with it. So his way out of the problem of evil is to deny God's goodness, and to conclude that a bad God is not only unworthy of his worship, he's also not someone Ivan wants to spend eternity with. It's like the ultimate unfriending. Now some readers have found Ivan's decision to be noble and full of integrity. After all, if you really think is letting some of this bad stuff happened, why would you want to be on his team? But other people think Ivan is being irrational. Why condemn yourself to an eternity in hell on purpose? principle. For theists, it's another question that doesn't have an
1: easy answer. Easy answer. Well, first of all, again, the thing of hell always comes up when people talk about this. It's not biblical. Okay? It simply isn't. Well, that's enough on that. Okay? But, you know, the, the idea, though, of us looking at God and saying, well, God is not stopping evil in this world right now, and so I am going to be angry at him. Jonathan, what we're doing is we're looking at God from the eyes of of a one small lifetime that legitimately may be suffering. I mean, look, in our world, there is sadness and brokenness and suicide and rage and jealousy and, and, and just, and just and, and broken hearts and, and darkness. You can't underestimate that. But what we cannot underestimate as well is the power of God and a plan. So if you want to give, make God accountable for the evil in the moment, you must have him accountable for what comes before and what comes after, because there is something different that comes after. God did want his creation back. He displays this by saving Noah, the only righteous man of his entire generation. He um, Did he just let others die? No. No. Okay? He provided fair and consistent warning. Um, John let's go to second Peter chapter five two uh, I'm sorry chapter two verse five.
2: and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly.
1: Okay, so Noah it calls Noah a preacher of righteousness. it says God did not spare the ancient world. There was harsh judgment in that statement. Hebrews eleven seven.
2: By faith, Noah being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. So Noah did what God
1: would have him to do and became faithful. Are we willing to hold God fully accountable for providing a long, detailed, and reverent warning to any who would listen of the coming destruction? Because Noah preached for a long time. Not one person listened. But the word was there. Now, God was had condemned the world to death. Unquestionably condemned that world to death. But God also gave them fair warning of what was coming. And they just simply didn't listen. Um, Jonathan, before we go further with this, hold, hold your, your thought. Trish, you're back. You've got a thought, question, comment?
5: Yes, I do. I just want to throw this out there. Maybe you're going to address it. But it just occurred to me that this a scripture that says... <clears throat> um, He man has become like one of us Mm -hmm. to know good and evil. So that last soundbite, that guy was really mad. Well, anybody who allows evil, well, my my impression is that good and evil exists in the spirit world. To know good and evil is just the way it is. Regardless, I mean, God and Christ knew good and evil. You know what I mean? Yes. So anyway, that's. That's my question. I don't think that if you're going to have intelligence, you cannot know good and evil.
1: So, no, and, and you know, you bring up a really important point because the idea of knowing good and evil is understanding its existence and evil, good and evil were known in the in the heavens long before mankind came because they were given the opportunity to open their eyes to understanding it prematurely before God wanted them to, it became a problem. And they ended up becoming a victim of and a perpetrator of evil rather than good, and that was the issue. But to know good and evil is the way it is; it's supposed to be. So when somebody says, "If you know, you know, you know about it, you don't do something," well, then are we saying all humans are bad too? You know, are we going to judge humans as harshly as we're going to judge God because we have the, the the power to be able to stop things? Why don't we? You know, you got you got to be fair in, in these judgments. Okay, let's get back. Thanks, Trish, for that. After the flood, man walked away from from God and from faith again. There's a there's a common theme here. The Tower of Babel comes to mind. And and you know you gotta you gotta ask yourself who, whose fault is all of this?
2: Well, that's a good question, Rick. Um, God let them abandon Him, but He never abandoned the few who would seek Him out. And the Tower of Babel is found in Genesis 11, to 9. We're going to put, probably put that in CQ uh, Rewind. But uh, they were saying, let us build a city and a tower whose top may reach to heaven. And let us make us a name. Uh, they were proud and haughty, and they thought they were the real deal. They walked
1: away from God. And that's what we always, always, always have to recognize, is when humankind walks away from God, they're walking towards very specific consequences that naturally exist. They naturally, God doesn't make you suffer. You naturally end up suffering because of that. Jonathan, I want to go back to this this uh, uh, contributor who was very, very angry with God. She continues. He, God, created my hell on earth. My grandma burned to death when I was three. My brother died of cancer when he was a baby. My mom, my dad, stepbrother, and stepfather all died with cancer. We were told my husband, Dave, was terminally ill, having all kinds of problems. I became 100% convinced that if there's anything out there, it is an evil, callous, cruel monster. I want to pause there and just express my... My heartfelt sadness for this the the experiences this this woman has gone through. It has got to be one of the most debilitating experiences to see suffering everywhere you look and you know you can't blame her for being angry because you're you're looking around and all you see is misery. I get it that's what sin brings, but god's plan does bring something later. Again, we can't look at the unfinished picture. Let's go back to the story of the open window. Okay, We were dealing with the, uh, the toddlers in our last episode of that story. Now we go on to the preteens.
4: Time went by and the twins grew into their preteen years. The man often played with his beautiful children, creating laughter and smiles. There were other times, though, when the man demanded of them. He pressed them to do chores, to help their mom, and to contribute to keeping their yard and things in order. Through his open window, the reclusive neighbor heard the laughter, but also heard the whining and the resistance of the children towards their father. He heard them frequently cry out, It's not fair, and I don't want to. The neighbor grew concerned, for it now seemed that this man was becoming self-centered and even demeaning. Surely he was no longer wonderful, and had now become barely caring, This man was a bad father.
1: So now he becomes a bad father. He was a good father. He was not as good a father. Now he's bad. Why? Because there's rebellion in the ranks. There's the I don't want to and it's not fair and the crying and, you know, the stamping of the feet. And that's what you hear. And, Jonathan, that's what we observe with these little snippets when we try to look at God and and paint him. But we can't paint an accurate picture of God without painting the whole picture. So let's now take a little bit of a turn, go to Abraham. Abraham obeyed and received hope that man's broken connection with God would be mended. Genesis 22, uh, 15 through 18.
2: Then the angel of the Lord said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, Because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice.
1: And that hasn't happened yet. Just like the destruction of Satan hasn't happened yet. All the nations of the earth being blessed hasn't happened yet. This is telling us about God's plan. This is telling us about the
2: breadth of the accountability we should put towards God. What's our question? Are we willing to hold God fully accountable for providing a detailed promise of coming blessing for all because of the faith of one man? And Rick, my answer is absolutely because he promised.
1: And see, that's the important thing. Jonathan, he promised Adam that if he sinned, he would die. He fulfilled that promise. He promised Abraham, if he was faithful, that all the families of the earth would be blessed because of him. And God keeps his promises. And the beautiful thing is, there are things that we look forward to. So if you're going to hold God accountable for evil, also hold him accountable for what's coming. And if you don't want to accept what's coming then stop holding him accountable for evil because you're not fair. You're not being fair. You're not seeing the whole picture. And it is, it is, it is really, frankly, it's hypocritical to, to try to make a judgment on God based on a phrase or this or that or a lifetime. So in spite of God's promises, though, to the few who would follow him, evil continued to grow in the world because it is it permeates. Genesis fifteen
2: sixteen. Then in the fourth generation, they will return. For the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. So God here is speaking to Abram about
1: his descendants and the promised land. He says, you know, you're going to go into the promised land, but you're not going to take the promised land because the Amorites who live there, their iniquity is not yet complete. So he says in the fourth generation, your, your, your descendants are going to return here. Then the iniquity of the Amorites will be complete.
2: So the evil has to run its course first? God allows it
1: to do so. Now you say, well, why wouldn't God just cut it off at the beginning? Because if he does, we don't know what evil is capable of. And once you know, all the world needs to do is know once in every possible circumstance what evil is capable of, and you'll never want to go back to it again. But humanity likes to, you know how you say, well, let me try it my way. And then the next person says, well, let me try it my way. And the next person says, well, let me try it my way. God says, try it all of your ways. Go ahead. See what happens. That's what this is, is, is uh, describing to us. Look, when the Israelites were slaves in Egypt, God allowed them, his people, to be treated harshly simply because they existed. That's in Exodus chapter 1. Moses finally rose up to deliver them, but in the meantime, why didn't God stop the abuse? Why wouldn't he stop it? God, because of the environment of sin and death that man chose, would justly allow the consequences of evil to come to their full, just like you said before, evil come to its full development. God made it plain to Israel in the context of the law that whomever would shun him would earn the consequences of generational sin. It doesn't mean that God is going to say, oh, you're going to suffer so badly because I'm going to make you suffer. What God says is the natural result of godlessness is suffering because all you have left is idolatry. And that never brings true peace. Deuteronomy 5, 8 through
2: 10. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments.
1: So now look, it says God is visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children. Now, so you say, well, so God is purposely doing that. What God does when God visits the iniquity, what He's doing is He's saying, here's what's going to happen sin breeds darkness, and we're going to get into a, a process of that. And He doesn't take that away. So when it says God visits it, what He's saying is, go ahead, see what happens. It's a father letting his child mess it up for the purpose of the child learning. God desires to bring humanity back to him, and he expressed it in his law, and he also expressed consequences. Those are the things we have to put in order. We've got to get that part right. So we have destruction and promise for good, and now we add passing sin on
2: to several generations. This seems really unfair. Is God purposefully sending iniquity down to innocent generations?
0: Sometimes our questions and commentary can get complicated. That's part of having a thorough discussion. We'd love to hear your opinion. Contact us now at ChristianQuestions.com. Comment through Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or our app. Just when you thought we may be figuring this out, let's get more complicated.
1: It's funny how we so easily jump to conclusions about God when it comes to perpetrating evil. Think logically about the generational effects we all experience from bad things in life. Substance abuse often begets dysfunction in children and their children. Those who are physically abused often become abusers. The message is simple. God is saying that evil begets evil. See, Jonathan, if we don't get and allow that message to permeate, we miss the point. So now, is God... Accountable for evil, sure, but he's accountable because he lets it take its course, and the big thing to understand is he lets it take his, takes it he lets it take its course for a specific and a terminal reason, in other words it's got an end. It's got a beginning, a middle, and an
2: end to it. And but, we know that, Rick, because of the promises that we just read.
1: Right. And there's many, 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 many. You know, there are tons more promises about the kingdom and all of the goodness than there is about all that destruction that people like to go quote. You know, it's just, you got be fair to God. Let's go back to the uh, crash course philosophy, the problem of evil. And uh, he's, in this, in this segment, he's going to be talking about um, the philosophy that good actually needs evil to be able uh, to exist.
3: Now, unlike Ivan, a lot of people aren't willing to give up their ticket to heaven. So they need to work on a way to keep believing in and worshiping God, even though evil is still a thing. One way to do that is to argue that good can't exist without its opposite. The idea here is that you can't understand the concept of pleasure without pain. We don't know what it feels like to be warm if we haven't been cold. We can't understand the goodness of filling our bellies if we've never been hungry. But there's also another way, though it involves a little more work on your part. Twentieth-century English philosopher of religion John Hick offered what's known as the soul-making theodicy. Unlike the traditional view that God created a perfect world, which we ruined through our own poor choices, Hick argued that God deliberately creates us unfinished, and our earthly lives are designed to toughen us up, in a sense, kind of like boot camp. The harshness of life, Hick said, gives us a robust texture and character that wouldn't be possible without an imperfect world. Hick said that we're not just God's little pets, and he's not our benevolent owner, whose sole job is to keep us in a safe, comfortable environment. Instead, he wants to build us, to train us into a particular kind of being. So we need an environment that's suited to the sort of growth that he wants, the sort that this world makes possible.
1: You know, there, there's, there's some good, there's some value to that, but it's very, very misplaced when you look at the injustice of the world and the death of children, and you know, they don't even get a chance to, to be able to experience those things. The beauty of it is, some of the principles he talked about our principles of righteousness will that will exist in the future. And the ability to learn from these things is what God's plan is really all about. Don't forget to hold them accountable for that part, even though it hasn't happened yet, because that's the way we have to deal with this. Jonathan, Trish is back again with more in terms of comments. Trish?
5: Hi, I'm uh, Rick and Jonathan. This is a, another comment from Facebook, Bible Do's and Don'ts. So I'll just read a few of them. It says... Um, don't eat selfish, but do have slavery. Don't shave your head, but do be prejudiced. And don't wear mixed uh, fabrics, but do treat women badly.
1: Okay. What do you think of those? What I think is he's taking things dramatically out of context. And it's and it's shameful. It is ac- actually shameful to be saying, here, I'm going to show you the Bible's do's and don'ts. No, you're not showing us Bible's do's and don'ts. You're showing us picked out cherry-picked scriptures to, sh- to, to try to prove points without understanding their context or their reason. And if you would take the time, you'd see things, well, you'd have the potential anyway to see things differently. Unless, of course, you are so driven by your agenda, you're blind to the truth. Then there's nothing anybody can do for you in this life. Wait till the resurrection, you'll have your chance. So, Trish, that's what I think of that. <laughs> Jonathan, Jewish law was a big step in the road back to God though it was only a temporary fix. Hebrews 10, verses 1 and 4.
2: For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins.
1: So Galatians tells us that the law was to lead us to Christ. It clearly defined sin and pointed to redemption. And Jonathan, that's one of the incredible things that most people completely miss about the law covenant. They like to complain, well, they sacrificed animals. Well, they couldn't wear mixed fabrics. Well, they couldn't eat shellfish. Well, they were, had to be different and separate. And they don't understand that what the law did was define what sin was. And by those sacrifices, those are pictures to lead us to Jesus. So it was a stepping stone. It was a law for an imperfect world to take a giant step toward understanding Jesus when he came. That's what it was there for. Help us get what evil is. That's how bad evil is. It takes thousands of years to figure it out, to to have mankind, you know, sow their wild oats, if you will, so that we can come to a point where, okay, we'll do it God's way. Let's go back to our story with the open window. We had the preteens and the reclusive neighbor listening in saying, this man is really not, not a good father. Now we get to the teenage years, and of course, you know what can potentially happen in teenage years. Let's listen.
4: The twins grew into their teen years. One seemed to adjust more easily than the other. Much of the laughter and smiles were now replaced with sibling rivalry and even some pointed rebellion against the father. Through his open window, the neighbor clearly heard the teens more loudly and more often than their father as they boldly proclaimed his inabilities. They repeatedly cited his flaws, and what they considered as his hypocrisy. He no longer treated the two of them the same, as he claimed that respect had its advantages and disrespect had its consequences. He was met with boisterous responses, saying he was ignorant of what they were feeling. There were times that they even announced that they hated him. The neighbor's concern became a need to speak up, as he was sure that the father had not only violated his contract, he had become an actual threat to his children. The reclusive neighbor did speak to the father and told him that he had unmistakably heard the fathering skills diminish over the years. He told the father that he was a poor example and that he was obviously hurting his children. The father simply explained that growing up respectfully and responsibly did not happen of its own accord and to be patient. For he as a father knew that his beloved twins would, with a continuous righteous example, figure it out. The neighbor retreated back to his home and continued to listen through his open window.
1: Kind of really unravels there, doesn't it? It does. And, you know, the, the neighbor's response is, you've really messed up. You're hurting your children. you got to stop. And he, he interjects himself into, into that father's life. Goes, it sounds
2: like the world attacking God, doesn't it
1: Rick? And that's what it's meant to sound like. It gives us a sense of we stand up as human beings and we point our finger at God and say, look at this th- those children of yours. Look at what a mess they are. Look at what you're doing to them. Look at how your demands are hurting them. Stop it. The father's response is, it's okay. Just wait because I'm not done. I am not done. They're not grown. Sin has not had its chance to come to its full fruition, and the world is not, is not at the point where God's next stage comes into play. So this is important, Jonathan, understanding that we can easily make a judgment based on that one little thing, and we need not do that. Israel had a law from God, and yet God commands them to wipe out an entire people. Now this is where it gets really tough. 1 Samuel 15, verses 1 to 3.
2: Then Samuel said to Saul, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has and do not spare him, but put to death both men and women, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. That sounds over the top, doesn't it? That's horrible. It is. It is. It's horrible. Look,
1: there's no other way to describe it. It's horrible. Why would God tell them to do that? Don't leave one living thing, children included. That's horrible. Look, it is. It just is. Why would God do that? Well, here's the thing. And this is part of the process of learning. The process is difficult. Because sin enters— The law was put in place, and it was all about justice. In the context of several reminders to be completely just, what we see is Deuteronomy 25, verses 17 through 19. Now, these verses are in the context of saying you've got to treat people fairly, treat people equally, be honest, and all this kind of thing. And then God says this through Moses to Israel. Go ahead.
2: Remember what Amalek did to you among the way when you came out from Egypt, how he met you along the way and attacked among you all the stragglers at your rear when you were faint and weary, and he did not fear God. So
1: he's talking to them about Amalek, and apparently when Israel was wandering in the wilderness and basically pretty much defenseless, Amalek comes up and mauls and kills many of those who were weakest in Israel, coming from behind, where they were completely defenseless. This is just a group of people in the, in, in the wilderness, okay? And it says, and he did not fear God. Perhaps there was an outward mocking of God as he slaughtered those people. He slaughtered them. That's what it says. So here's what God says. Remember, and it's about justice,
2: Therefore, it shall come about when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your surrounding enemies in the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance to possess. You shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You must not forget.
1: So when you look at that and Israel was commanded under Saul to wipe out Amalek, you say, "Okay, you know, whose fault was that? Was it Amalek's fault that he went and he killed innocent people, and this was just retribution upon them? You know. Now look, we're not advocating eye for eye, tooth for tooth, life for life here and now, but then that was the law, and you can't make God the monster when you had the human humans doing that to others, and he was putting retribution in place. So it's horrible. There's, there's, no, there's, there's no, no two ways about it. But he mocked God, and he slaughtered innocent people, and he ended up paying. Now, here's the thing. Saul did not fully complete this task, and later on, an Amalekite named Haman tried to destroy Israel. And if it weren't for Queen Esther, he would have succeeded. So, you know, you've got this thing about the justice of the Old Testament. It is harsh. There is no question about it. Did God order the slaughter of those people? Yes, he did. He had just reason, and that's what happens in a world that sin rules. God follows through on the principles that generation after generation, um, that the generations after an evil against God is done, the evil still exists, and it comes to its judgment. Is it fair? Okay, well, look, within the confines of the consequences of sin and death— that's the way life works. And, Jonathan, that's the thing we have to be really careful about. We have to understand, when you're in the confines of sin and death, that's what happens. Okay? Let's let's give a, a, a couple of quick examples here. Promiscuity. Now, look, this is going to offend some people, but sorry. Okay? Promiscuity over generations, you know what happens? It brings disease. If you are sexually promiscuous you are in line for disease. You actually help to contribute to disease and the spreading of disease. Now, you may not know it. And if you're being promiscuous, but you're not spreading disease, are you evil? Some will say yes, and some will say no. Okay, let me go with no, even though I think it's yes. <laughs> okay. All right. But so what happens now if you have a disease, but you don't know it, and you're you're spreading it? Are you now evil? got to answer that question, don't you? What if you have a disease and you think you might, but you don't want to check and you spread it? Are you now evil? What if you have it and you don't care and you spread it? Are you now evil? Where do you draw the line with human to human evil? Because you know what? We pass evil. And when we talk about sin and death and sickness, we pass it amongst ourselves. You know, uh, what, what? what about the opioid epidemic? You know, how did that happen? Part of it began because the medical, uh, the medical field decided that instead of doctors observing and prescribing medication based on their observations of pain, they gave that responsibility to the patient, thinking it was a better way to do things. And the phrase in the medical field is pain is what they, the, the, the person who's suffering, is what they say it is. So if that person is sitting in front of you and says their pain is a 10 on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being the worst... You have to believe them, and that's how drugs got so far out of hand. That's one of the reasons. Who's evil in that? You know, you got to ask yourself the question, and what you and be fair. Everybody likes to make God accountable, but what about us? What about the things that we do to perpetrate evil? Why don't we look harshly at ourselves as well, um, Jonathan? Our time is running a little, little, little short in this in this segment, so I'm gonna um, let's move down to the Roman scripture, okay? For us, for us here and now, we're told that within humankind there is a compass that can find God. This is really important because we're talking about what about us? What about me? What about the evil that I potentially can perpetuate? Listen to this, Romans 2, 12-16.
2: For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified.
1: Okay, so it's saying that, look, if you have sinned and you weren't under the law, you're going to perish. If you are under the law and you sin, you're going to perish. You know, it's a matter of doing the right thing that makes you right before God, not just knowing about the right thing. Verses 14 through 16.
2: For when Gentiles who did not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately excusing or else defending them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus.
1: So he says that even those individuals who were not given the law, we have instinctively an understanding of good and evil. We've got that sense, and we can lean toward good. Not saying you get it perfect, but you can lean toward that which is good. And he's saying, for those who are able to do that, that's a good thing for them. They're they're, they're lifting themselves up. So we have internal compasses. The question is, how much do we choose to ignore them? And be honest. Be accountable. Be accountable for yourself. We want to make God accountable for himself. You be accountable for yourself. How much do you ignore that compass and do things that you know you ought not to do, perhaps? What's the question in relation to God here?
2: Are we willing to hold God fully accountable for allowing a just consequence to run its course and for giving humanity the ability to have a righteous instincts? So God gave us the ability to
1: have righteous instincts. He gave that to us. Are we willing to hold him accountable for just consequences? And sin is such a big thing that it takes a long, long time for its just consequences to come to be. In some ways, God seems so harsh, and in others, he seems so full of foresight. How do we put it all together?
2: Bottom line, does God really create calamity? As our theme scripture says, is God at fault for evil?
0: There's a lot of talk program topics out there. If you're burnt out on Capitol Hill and Trump, don't worry, we never go there. But if you're looking for unique ways to look at the Bible, we'll make you think about how today's world ties into Scripture like you've never thought about before. Thanks for listening, and get ready for us to take a deeper dive right now.
1: So far, we've seen God points humanity toward righteousness and punish grave acts of darkness. He allows the context of sin to do what it will, and within that context, continually points us to the road back to him let us never forget god's big picture not my big picture not yours let's never forget god's big picture for it has a glorious and inclusive conclusion and jonathan i cannot stress enough that if we want to say god's accountable for evil and he is we have to finish that with the logical conclusion that according to the scripture, God allows evil for a time, but brings grace and goodness and resurrection to every man, woman, and child who ever lived. That's how you put it all together. Let's go back for the final time to our crash course philosophy, the problem of evil. And he talks about in this, in this, um, this uh, soundbite, problem, the evidential problem of evil.
3: A lot of people find these and other theodicies to be pretty compelling. However, the problem of evil actually goes a step deeper. What we've been talking about so far is the logical problem of evil. This problem can be resolved if we can explain why there's evil. But there's also the evidential problem of evil. This problem points out that we might be able to explain why evil exists, but we still can't explain why there's so much evil in the world. For instance, let's say that it's true that we really do need evil in order to understand goodness. In that case, why can't we understand the contrast through some sort of low-level evil, like paper cuts and head colds and having to work straight through our lunch hour every now and then. I mean, slow, painful deaths from cancer and city-destroying hurricanes, they don't really add anything valuable to our understanding of goodness, do they? If God were truly good, and if a negative contrast were really needed in order for us to understand the goodness of the world, then why wouldn't he just give us the very minimum dosage of necessary evil to achieve that goal?
1: You know, that's an interesting question, and I think the answer is God does give the minimum dosage. But because humanity has the ability to think and to reason and to, and to experiment and to try and to apply themselves, how many of us have said, if we did it this way, it would be better? And through time, what's happened is we have been trying this way and this way and this way, and we have been, we've been taking God out of the picture— and now it's kind of politically incorrect to bring God into a picture. You know, you, <laughs> you know you, people get offended when you bring up God. And so God is allowing society to go down that road. Because the inevitable end of that is prophetically, this is not my prediction, this is prophetically, is a world that brings complete anarchy. That's what happens when we do it without God. And Jonathan, I want to read um, the last piece of this woman's terribly, horribly, difficult, heart-wrenching story. And, here, and, and you know, she just talked about in, in her last piece about all her family members dying of cancer and all this. And she says, I want to end my life desperately. But the, quote, God of love has prepared a place worse than any death camp for people who don't love and trust him. I hate him but the blank has my husband and others that I love. So she feels like she is trapped by God, and her hatred for God just is, just is just overwhelming her. And all I can say is it breaks my heart that anyone goes through those kinds of things. And, you know, it seems almost um, trite to say, well, you know, don't worry in the future. Things will be better, but they will. Because you know what? every one of her relatives who has already died, the next thing they will know is being raised to life and being given an opportunity to live without the cancer, without the trauma, without the tragedy. They will have that chance because that's God's plan. And like you said before, when God promises, God delivers. Let's hold them accountable for that. Let's go back to the principles of the first commandment. About idolatry. God reminds us of our human responsibility. Romans 1 18 to 23.
2: For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his internal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. So, uh, go ahead, Jonathan. And and Rick, after reading this and thinking about this, um, preparing for the podcast, it made me think of Christianity teaching this false doctrine of hellfire, suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. They know God is love. They know... His goodness, and they can look out and see his creation and how everything works in harmony. They know better. But as we've done uh, the podcasts on, on the eternal torment and punishment, we know that it was done for selfish reasons, for controlling people, yep. for their wealth, to dra- drain them of their fun. The, what's behind this is really evil. And knowing God's plan and knowing the word hell means covered over and buried, it doesn't mean torment or, or anything like that. It just, uh, it's so sad that so many people have to hear that lie.
1: Yeah. And, you know, it's been per- per- uh, perpetuated through generations and tradition. And, you know, a lot of times you're, you're many generations from the the origin of that and you don't question it anymore. And that's what happens with evil. We, we accept it as the truth and the way it is, and we don't question it anymore. And, that, and God lets that happen on purpose, so we'll be able to look back and say, never will we ever want to go there again. Why doesn't God just give us little glimpses of evil? Because he wants us to see its full, disgusting, heinous, and despicable effects, so we never go back to it. Let's go back to Romans 1, uh, 21 through or 23, and I'm going to interrupt you a lot.
2: <laughs> For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations.
1: Okay, so futility, says they became futile in their speculations, futility is a result of denying God. Now watch the process that unfolds in this verse. You've got futi- futility is a result of denying God.
2: And their foolish heart was darkened.
1: So the darkness is a result of the futility. So you denied God and your searching now becomes futile and now it brings darkness.
2: Professing to be wise, they became fools. So foolishness is a result
1: of the darkness. You see this, this domino effect, and you're getting worse and worse and worse. And verse 23.
2: And exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible men, of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. So
1: idolatry is the result of foolishness. And idolatry is anything that puts the created above the creator, period. And when we do that, we have nothing but death and destruction coming. May not come today, may not come tomorrow, may not come in your lifetime or your children's lifetime, but rest assured that whenever we put the creature above the created, it brings sadness, It brings brokenness because we need God. It's really, really, really that simple. So that's the downward process when we ignore the power of the majesty of the creation. I mean, Jonathan, just very, very quickly, it is mathematically impossible for the universe to be in the condition it's in by chance. It is just a complete, total, utter... Absolute impossibility. And yet the universe is mathematical. How come nobody ever talks about that? I, I always <laughs> wonder. So, so so, what's the question in terms, of, in terms of God's accountability here?
2: Are we willing to hold God fully accountable for giving us minds capable of observing the astounding grandeur of creation? He gave us minds
1: capable of seeing the incredible beauty, the bigness, and the complexity and, and the details, he gave that mind to us. And, you know, we can see a lot of these things. And we think we're so smart when we unravel a strand of DNA and say, ah, we figured out how it works. Yeah, well, who made it work? <laughs> you know, that's the thing. Who made it? It's great that you figured it out, but you're not the one who made it. See, that's what we've been given. Let's go to our final chapter in the open window story. Okay, so now we've gone through the teenager years and they were very difficult, and the man next door hears this and says, This man is an awful, awful father. Let's get to the conclusion.
4: Years went by, and the neighbor had grown tired of listening to the unrest next door and completely lost interest. His final conclusion was that the father, who had since moved away, had always been a menace. A few more years went by, and the neighbor became feeble. He lost track of the twins. When his own wife had passed away and he was silently suffering with the grief of his loss, there came a knock on his door. It was the twins. They were now adults, and each had their own children. They had come to comfort him and help him. They cleaned his house and his yard and helped him get his things in order so he could better cope with his trauma. They seemed to him to be almost like angels. The neighbor asked them how it was that they grew into such powerful, caring, and conscientious adults, especially having been raised by that wretched father of theirs. (laughs) The twins smiled. They explained the amazing experience of growing up with the most caring dad they could have ever imagined. They explained how he taught them respect and responsibility, hard work and integrity, patience and perseverance. They explained how the consequences he put in place as a result of their misbehavior taught them what goodness and righteousness really were. They explained how they now knew that everything he did was for their ultimate benefit and that they hoped to parent their children with the same focus, wisdom, and love that he had parented them with. The reclusive neighbor now, for the first time in a very long time, smiled. He had opened the window of his heart and had heard for the first time of the father's true character, And the neighbor thought, their dad was my neighbor. Surely this man was the best father he could have ever been.
1: Amazing what happens when you look at the story after it ends. And you can look back through the whole story. And through the eyes and the experiences of the twins in this story, they tell this reclusive neighbor, he was awesome. He did everything for our best benefit. He made us work hard. He cornered us when we did wrong. He gave us consequences. And he loved us. And he taught us how to be adults. And I want to raise my kids. Exactly the same way. That is what we could see. When we see God. From the final picture. Looking backwards. So Jonathan in our last few minutes. Let's go to the context of our theme scripture. We haven't even talked about it yet. Um, and the focus of this context is King Cyrus. Now, King Cyrus is a pagan king who freed Israel. And he and God chose him to use him to do good to Israel, even though he wasn't a Jew. Isaiah 45, uh, verses 1 through 7.
2: Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him, to open doors before him so the gates will not be shut. So now all of this was for the
1: purpose of giving God's people freedom after captivity. So he takes Cyrus to do that for them. So this everything God God is is describing here, Cyrus has got a mission that God is giving him, and Cyrus is a good, good man. God is saying that this king will be a tool for righteousness in God's hand. And now God describes himself. Isaiah 45, we're going to jump to verses 5 through 7.
2: I am the Lord. There is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I will gird you though you have not known me, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other.
1: So God is saying, I am the God. Verse 7.
2: The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these.
1: So you think about it and says, okay, God says, I create calamity. Now, does this say that God creates all calamity? Well, what does he mean? See, he's speaking of the providence involved in the deliverance of his people. He is not proclaiming himself as the father of calamity. He's proclaiming himself as the father of his people that overrules for their benefit difficulties and goodness. He overrules all of those things for their benefit. And, you know, Jonathan, when people want to pick on God and they say, see, God is a creator of calamity, they'll stop right there with that verse. But, you know, you can't do that. You can't do that. You just, you know what? You can't do that. Let's look at the conclusion that God himself reveals when he speaks of calamity. Isaiah 45, the very next verse. Listen to this, verses 8 and 9.
2: Drip down, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds pour down righteousness. Let the earth open, and salvation bear fruit, and righteousness spring up with it. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to the one who quarrels with his Maker." will the clay say to the potter what are you doing or the things you are making say he has no hands
1: so first of all there's a, pro- a prophecy of righteousness dripping down from heaven and god says i'm the creator of this i am the maker of this salvation bearing fruit righteousness springing up jonathan this is a great picture this it's is beautiful thy kingdom come that's what this picture is and and you know and he says what are the one who quarrels with his maker? Folks, do we do this when we argue with God? Will the clay say to the potter, what are you doing? Do you really know what you're doing? This is God Almighty. He is accountable, but for all of the whole plan. Isaiah forty-five eighteen.
2: For thus says the Lord who created the heavens. He is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it and did not create it a waste place, but formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is none else.
1: So, Jonathan, as we wrap this up, I mean, really what we're coming down to is God is saying in that Isaiah prophecy that, yes, he brings calamity, but for the purpose of bringing eventual and lasting righteousness. And there are many, 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 many scriptures that we could go through that describe
2: that righteousness for us, that everlasting righteousness. What's the question here as we wrap up? Are we willing to hold God fully accountable for having an actual thought out plan that allows for evil to come to its full maturity so that it will never be heard from again? Are we willing to hold God fully accountable
1: for evil and having a letting it become full?
2: Let, Amen, Rick. We are.
1: That's right. Let's hold God accountable for this plan that says. Evil must run its course, and it's taken thousands of years. And we've got a world full of humans that are saying, well, where's God in all this, and how come all of this is happening? And the answer is because it is a terminal event taking place. God's got this in hand, is taking responsibility for the evil because he will bring it to an end. And when he brings it to an end, that will beginning, be the beginning of the peaceable kingdom of, the, of righteousness and goodness under God himself. Jesus said, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Folks, that is what God is accountable for. For Jonathan and Rick and Christian Questions, we hope you've enjoyed being with us today. It's an important subject to talk about the accountability of God. Make sure you do it with honesty. Think about it. Folks, we want to hear from you. Give us your feedback or send us your questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Also, Big part of our spreading the word about our program is subscribe into Christian Questions and iTunes and Google Play and Stitcher and whatever your favorite podcast channel is. Rate us and review us. We'd greatly, greatly appreciate it. Coming up next week, how do you show your joy to the world? Talk to you then.